Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. James Goldsmith, Robert Maxwell, Nadim Zahawi, Sabi Mionis, Mohamed Amersi. What do all these people have in common? Well, they're plutocratic figures who use aggressive lawsuits to silence journalists and other critics who want to investigate their activities. For many years, we didn't have a term for this form of litigation, but now we do. They're called SLAPs, Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. Have I got that right, Neil? I think so. And they're rightly seen as a challenge to freedom of expression. In particular, they've been used in the business and financial worlds to stifle scrutiny and criticism of corporate activities. Britain has been tightening up the rules to make slaps harder to bring, and this week the EU said it would bring in laws to achieve the same purpose. Now, our guest today, David Hooper, is a former solicitor who specialised in media and defamation law and appeared last year on the show talking about oligarchs and their dubious legal practices. Now he's written a book, Buying Silence, about slaps, and we thought we'd get him back on to talk about the legal history and why these suits have become such a problem, and even how to fix them. So welcome, David. Good to have you back. Very nice to be back. (laughs) People often associate slaps with Russian oligarchs, but it's a much bigger, older history. And could you tell us a little bit about the background? Well, you really go back to people like uh, Sir James Goldsmith and Fayed and Maxwell. They got in the habit of trying to stop publications issuing uh, rafts of writs. Uh, Goldsmith issued about 80 writs against Private Eye. Mm. Maxwell was trying to stop books being sold about him and requiring instead of people to read hagiographies of what, what he wanted to read. And they all had the common feature that he was prepared to throw unlimited sums of money and to intimidate the rest of the press because people have only limited funds to spend on lawyers. So, as you say, this has been around for a very long time, but why are we only worrying about it now? Why has it become an issue, whereas it clearly wasn't in the same way back in the 70s when James Goldsmith was trying to bankrupt Private Eye? I think it it was after the invasion of Ukraine and the actions brought by the Russian oligarchs, some of which were totally scandalous and uh, these guys had been in, in prison and the ultimate thing was when Mr. Prozhogin sued for libel for suggesting that he was connected with the Wagner group. <laughs> That's a wonderful idea, isn't it? That he uh, thought he could get a chance in the British legal system of uh, demonstrating that he wasn't in charge of this bunch of thugs that he'd been in charge of for for years. The key thing was that these guys weren't really interested in getting a remedy or vindicating their reputation. In Prisogin's case, it was trying to get the Americans to drop indictments against him, trying to get sanctions lifted. There's that backdrop. But it, it may be worth just sort of trying to describe for listeners... The purpose of libel litigation or defamation, what defamation law is supposed to do, and why these sort of lawsuits are particularly pernicious and bad. It's, I mean, the basic purpose of a libel action is to vindicate your reputation and to show that something has been written false about you, get some damages and 
get an apology. Here you have ulterior motives and the problem with libel actions is that there is a public interest which perhaps doesn't exist in relation to an ordinary commercial dispute because we have the right to information mm. and the right to freedom of speech and to know about it. And a lot of these people can live with controversy. After all, they have endless public relations people acting for them. And, of course, one knows from social media that you, you take the good and the bad and people are pretty good at making their own mind up. And the other pernicious thing about libel actions is that some of these aggressive law firms can launch these cases without any investigation as to whether what they're putting forward is true. The burden then falls upon you, the defendant, to prove it. And you can be faced with a bill of up to £500,000 before you can get a judge to throw it out. And of course, quite often, you don't get the money back. Yes. Let's look at some of the commercial cases which you highlight in your book where you say these have the characteristics of deliberately slap-like tactics. A lot of them involve pharmaceutical companies where you can, you can certainly see their interest in, in not having people cast sort of aspersions about their products. But maybe we can start with Upjohn, which was a case involving a sleeping pill called Halcyon in the 1990s, I think. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and what made it into a particularly outrageous misuse of power by Upjohn. It was a particularly scandalous case because they had faked their tests. They had switched the results to put bad symptoms against placebos. And it was all documented. They were selling these drugs, which were for too long and in far too high doses. People were getting murdered or committing suicide. And because it made people paranoid. so it, they... made, it made people paranoid. It was a good pill to take if you were, wanted extra hours sleep on your overnight flight from America. Mm. But if, if you had paranoid tendencies, you might go out and <laughs> murder one of your re- relations, which is not <laughs> ideal for a sleeping pill. No, no. This Scottish professor, Professor Oswald, discovered that they had faked these tests which were carried out on long-term prisoners, and that they had done so fraudulently. So they'd gone into, they'd conducted their medical trials in prison. Well, it, well, it was rather nice for the prisoners because <laughs> they had a few weeks out and they were yeah. paid a few extra dollars a day. Yeah. But once Professor Oswald started exposing it, you actually saw these memoranda that mm. came to light as to how they deliberately chose to go after him. One of the features of these slap cases is that you tend to go after the weak link. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was a retired professor living on, on his pension and they sued him for libel for what he had said. I mean, it sounds such a sort of monstrous case. You can't believe that it would ever get anywhere because the evidence is so overwhelming. So how come it got as far as it did to making his life a complete misery. Because it came up in front of a judge who couldn't believe that these doctors would all lie their heads off to him, which unfortunately they did. It was during the early days of computers and the judge was was quite sort of tech savvy, so he spent all his time looking at his computer. He never looked at these doctors in the eye and and saw that they were (laughs) telling the most terrible porkies. 
Yes. But Upjohn actually did win a case against Oswald. That was a thing. So in a way, they could say we were vindicated. They won against him and he won against them. But overall, they won because yeah, the judge got more couldn't... more money than he did. The judge thought that these were just transcription errors. But, mm. of course, if you switch things in columns and you do it consistently, it's clearly much worse than that. But that does touch on a problem which, which does come up. I mean, in certainly in the media, it is quite possible for a journalist, for example, to uncover something which is absolutely wrong and should be stopped. But he or she might get certain things wrong, minor facts wrong. The person who's going after them can focus on on that side of it to try and discredit them. That's a pretty common thing, isn't it, in media law? Well, they did, they did in this case, latch on to one or two mistakes that he had made. Mm. The problem was, was the burden of proof. I mean, it was a very serious allegation to make. Yeah. As ha- often happens in a lot of his uh, libel cases, the truth emerged subsequently. You just got more and more evidence. And the FDA, the D- Drug Administration in Washington, in the end agreed with Professor Oswald and and the drug was banned in most countries and in the countries where it was allowed to be sold it was sold in safe doses and for short periods so I mean he was vindicated in the end. So that's a a good case Uh, we have lots more what do you think should be done to try and if you like reset the boundaries of what is permissible where the the line between what businesses and individuals can do to protect their reputation on the one hand and the actions of people who believe they've found some wrongdoing on the other, which seems to me to be clearly drawn in the wrong place at the moment. Well, what you need is for experienced judges to look at the thing overall and to balance the public's interest in knowing about this and having access to this information and the exercise of free speech against the need for these people to have a remedy because very very often it's a matter of legitimate public debate journalists of course do get things wrong and uh, people are entitled to vindication but you really need a judge to decide that at the outset rather than as is happening at the moment, these cases running for a couple of years and costing hundreds of thousands of pounds. But what is the motivation for the judge to make a decision at the beginning when he'd much rather wait until everything has been laid out in front of him? Well, I think it's a question of telling the judges that this is what they've got to do because there's been much too much of a tendency to say, well, we accept the defence arguments on eight points, but the claimant may have an argument on two of the points. So let's send it off to trial. And of course, if you're doing that, those with the deepest pockets are almost bound to win because eventually people run out of money. And I think we've got to trust judges. I think what people really want is a swift decision in justice and also one that isn't too expensive. Are you saying that there is no mechanism at the moment for doing that? There is a mechanism of public interest, but it's very limited and it's very expensive because it involves a minute examination of how carefully the journalist 
went into the story, whether it was reasonable for them to conclude that it was a matter of public interest. What, what ends up by happening is that the journalist ends up almost by being on trial, whereas really what you want is a fairly arbitrary decision by the judge who, who can perhaps come up with a solution that there is a public statement, some vindication, but the case gets resolved at, a, at an early stage. But presumably judges aren't kind of pushing these things to trial because they just like the idea of sitting in a courtroom listening to a, a bunch of querulous lawyers squabbling over all sorts of stuff. It's because they feel that they are at risk of being appealed if they give some sort of summary judgment and sweep aside some powerful pharmaceutical company's angry claims and just say, well, we're, we're not going to deal with this. That They will then be in, in some sort of jeopardy themselves. You're absolutely right. There are far too many appeals in this. There is a great temptation to allow cases to go ahead because you may be wrapped over the knuckles by the Court of Appeal if you don't. But I'm saying that the Court of Appeal should trust judges. These cases are heard before specialist judges who are people of the world. And let's have a decision quickly and cheaply because do you really get a better form of justice if you've spent 500,000 or a million? I, I don't think you necessarily do. Depends because very often... The, you ask. The, 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 <laughs> I mean, the, law, the, lawyers are, the lawyers are very, very happy, but it almost inevitably means that the person with a shallower pocket yeah. is going to drop by the wayside. Yes. But surely you don't mean that the Court of Appeal should have no, no role to play no, I mean, obviously, there's got to be a right of appeal, but we have case management. But it's sort of case management with the Court of Appeal looking very, very closely over the shoulders of the judge, judges. And I think they ought to just trust the judges. They know what, they know what they're doing. Uh, and they're people of the world. I want to move a step back up the food chain here. And talk a bit about the lawyers and what happens before it gets to the courtroom. Because it does seem to me that if you look at a number of these cases, and Upjohn maybe is one, but I, I, maybe I'd like to bring in another one, which is the case involving that magnificent adornment to public life, <laughs> Nadim Zahawi. And Nadim Zahawi basically brought a case against a, a friend of the show, Dan Needle, who had done some investigative work looking at the somewhat complicated tax affairs of Nadim Zahawi. And effectively, what Nadim Zahawi and his lawyers, or through his lawyers, did was to basically just issue a series of threats to Dan Needle, which were couched in terms that said, you can't tell anyone that we are threatening you or challenging this but you should know that if you don't retract everything without telling anyone what's going on, we're going to come after you. Now, in most cases, that might have been quite a, had quite a chilling effect on the recipient. But in this case, of course, because Dan Needle was himself a lawyer with 30 years' experience at Clifford Johns, he chortled happily and, <laughs> and committed, committed the, the letters to, to Twitter or whatever it's called these days. <laughs> But that's a case of the lawyers should have done more. You know, Osborne Clark, I think, was the firm involved. They should have said to Nadim at the beginning, and there were a whole host of questions they could have asked him. First of all, they could have made sh absolutely sure that everything that they were being asked to say to Needle was correct. 
and it turned out over a series of exchanges that it wasn't. And secondly, it's simply outrageous that they should behave in this way and try and sort of threaten somebody to isolate them in this way and threaten them with legal action using a form of language which wasn't even correct. They didn't have any entitlement for him to keep their confidence. I had a very similar threat uh, directed to me the other day. It's far too easy for them just to launch into cases. And up till now, there has not really been any requirement on them to investigate the cases because some of the cases brought are so obviously without merit, so obviously bound to fail, but the lawyers don't really want to turn the, turn the work away. And the people who I think <laughs> will, make, will make the difference are the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, because they're saying you really got to consider the facts. I mean, obviously, you don't know all the facts at the outset. But if your client's been indicted and sanctioned or whatever, that should raise some questions in your mind. But I mean, people are a little inclined to look at somebody coming through the door and say, that's £100,000 worth of fees, and that's, that's wrong. But I thought lawyers did have a duty to uphold justice in some... They're not simply attack dogs for whoever pays their fees. Or am I wrong in thinking that? No, no. I mean, the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority have reminded people um, <laughs> of their duty to the, <laughs> duty to the court. And my word, did they not need reminding? And I mean, clearly, um, one shouldn't come away with the idea that journalists never get things wrong or that it's not uh, reasonable to have reasonably aggressive lawyers. Most people who hire a lawyer so want a Rottweiler rather than a cockapoo. That's true, but but if you're going to be a Rottweiler, it puts a duty on you to make sure that you're savaging the right in people. the right direction. Yeah, absolutely, because you're throwing a burden of proof on it, and by writing your ten-page letter from one of these uh, aggressive law firms, you're committing the other side to massive costs. Hmm. Is there any evidence that the SLA has actually done anything? other than writing a sort of rather you know, letter of disappointment or saying that uh, you really must make sure that your client is OK, because it seems to me that they are part of the show, aren't they? Well, I think we'll have to wait till the end of the year to dis discover that, because they are at the moment looking into 50 complaints. They're certainly going to take action, they've said, in relation to two of them. I think they've said... In 19 of them, they're not going to take action or they're going to put out warning letters. This is new territory. And I think we should give some credit and some support. I mean, I certainly didn't start off by thinking that the SRA were a particularly impressive body. But they are taking this seriously. And what is good about the SRA is that they look at the general picture you know, don't have the uh, complicated definitions of is it economic crime or not. So I think solicitors are going to have to amend their behaviour. And I think the other thing that's coming down the line are much bigger fines on solicitors. But I, I suppose the question I would have is, has the SRA ever struck off, for example, a partner of a magic circle for, for anything to do with this sort of thing? Yes, well, I think... That is coming down the line because they are uncovering some very serious 
misbehaviour, and there's certainly some litigation involving a big international firm, where at the end of that one would imagine there would be some very fierce action. Mm. But of course one of our difficulties is that when, while cases are before the court, they have to wait till the judge has finished it, which can be years. Yeah. Mm, that's, we, that's handy. Can we talk about one other aspect of, that you talk about in your book, which is about effectively the use by litigants stroke their lawyers of investigators and uh, gumshoes and other people to discredit the people they're up against. Is there a particular case that you point to in this which you think was particularly outrageous? Well, a case which I was personally involved with, I, I was massively hacked, as was the barrister. Yeah. We were hacked at home, our LinkedIn accounts, our family, our clients uh, were hacked. And winning at all costs and by any means is becoming more and more prevalent. There was a study done at the University of Toronto and also a branch of GCHQ called the National Cyber Service saying that hacking has become very much more common. Mm. And then you private detectives putting people under surveillance. And then you also get public relations companies employed to discredit the other party. And I mean, very often it's just done sort of gratuitously and as a, as a means of winning the case at all costs. And, of course, it enormously increases the, the cost of the litigation because the other party has to respond to it and deal with it. And can this information, if I glean information completely illegally about you, presumably it can't be brought into the court by any reputable firm of solicitors as evidence to support their case? Courts do sometimes look at, look at evidence, but there would be a great outcry from the other side as to the means. I mean, because it's discretionary as to whether the court... I mean, because sometimes illegally obtained evidence does actually reveal what the truth was. Mm. But certainly in one case, which... I'm thinking about the Mohammed Fayed versus Jonathan Aitken case where the famous facts, which was almost certainly a breach of what we'd now have with data legislation, was was the thing that finally sent him to prison. Yes, uh, and you also get people giving untrue accounts as to where the evidence has come from. They claim that they've got it innocently. But I think a court would probably almost always exclude such evidence. But what's the remedy for that? Is that for the solicitors and others to say, solicitors say, we're not going to get involved with these illegal operations? Is there an obvious way in which you can reduce that sort of unpleasant activity? Well, I think there is. I think you try and bring in something rather comparable to what you have for money laundering, which is that if people hire these private investigators, rather than saying don't do anything illegal and they then employ a whole lot of sub-agents who start doing the hacking, they've got to spell out exactly what these guys are doing and they've got to be responsible for monitoring it and keep records of it. It is then open to the SRA to say, well... What did you do in this case? How come this hacking took place? What did you what did you know about it? What were your dealings? And look at the files. It's obviously not going to guarantee that it never happens, but it's going to be a very serious matter if people are caught out doing it. I imagine that the intelligent, if unscrupulous, firm was doing this, it would find ways of 
inserting a cutout so that it wasn't possible to find it all the way through. Well, that's a bit of a council of despair there. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's obviously never going to be perfect, but I think it, the solicitors as a body in this area seem to be completely amoral looked at from the outside. There seems to be no possibility of them saying, should we be acting for this guy because we don't much care for him? It's the only question they ask is, is he good for large amounts of money? If that is your philosophy, then it's extremely difficult to try and impose rules from the from the governing body, which will not have the same expertise as you have. You've got the same problem for the SRA as the poor defendant has dealing with a very well-heeled organisation where money is no object. I think you're being a bit pessimistic about it because, yes, I mean, people may well try and cover it up, but the reputational damage and the sanctions that could be imposed on you are very, very severe indeed. The other thing about private investigators is that they are pretty singular sort of people. There's one case going on where five of the private investigators who have been involved in hacking lawyers have changed sides. So they, they've actually <laughs> come and said, we perjured ourselves when we gave evidence for you. And in fact, not only that, we, we, went, we were trained by the law firm. We were sent to what's, be, what's been referred to in court as perjury school in the Bernese Alps. Uh, and so it is, it is a dangerous thing to do. And I mean, in that same case, uh, they said that... Which um, case is this, by the way? This is a case involving an international law firm, which you might prefer, that I don't, but, but I might prefer that I don't name them. But, <laughs> no, quite. Uh, they, 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 otherwise, they, their Rottweiler <laughs> lawyers will be on to us. Exactly. The answer with doing wrong is that there's always someone who knows that you're doing wrong and you're dealing with pretty pretty sleazy people when you're dealing with this and uh, you wouldn't really want your reputation and general well-being to, to depend on them. So I don't think you need to be that pessimistic. What we've really described here is a situation, I think, where you have a lot of wealthy litigants who basically see this partly because possibly they've been wound up by their reputational advisors and PR companies that they must hit with a mallet anything that could be possibly described as a criticism. And you have a lot of lawyers who rather than having cool cool heads and behaving responsibly are simply rising to the uh, bait. <laughs> Do you think that the steps that are being taken I mean, obviously, there's been some recognition as a result of the Russians and the fact that they've been knocked out of the game. So people have been able to say this is what they were up to, because that's been part of the revelation has has been the post-Ukraine situation where all of a sudden these terrifying legal kind of attacks were stopped in their tracks. Do you think that the kind of response to this is likely to lead to much of a change? Or do you think that we still haven't really got our minds around the full dimensions of the problem? What we've ended up is with a compromise act because it was possible to tag anti-slap laws onto an economic crimes act. 
but is not entirely satisfactory because many slap actions have nothing to do with economic crime. They can be private, they can deal with housing issues, they can deal with practically anything. But I think it's going to change the way people think about these matters. I think it's going to change the view of the way the judges approach it. And then you've also got the SRA saying, well, if we discover that you have broken the rules of conduct, which are wider than the rather limited legislation that's been passed, I think there there will be a change, but perhaps we shouldn't all hold our breath. Well, it's uh, it's marginally encouraging, I would say, uh, from the point of view of somebody who's more likely to be a defendant than a litigant in this area. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.